It is a privilege to be here and to open up God's Word with you this morning. I would like to begin by reading from the 10th chapter of Mark. I'll start in the 13th verse. Our text today will be beginning in Mark chapter 10, verse 13. And they brought young children to him, that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them and blessed them. And when he was gone forth and into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, All these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about and saith to his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This is God's word, and here in this passage we have really three different scenes set side by side, and together they comment on one another and exposit the truth that is revealed to us about God's kingdom in all of these different events. First, we have this scene where people bring their young children, their little uh, babies or very small children to Jesus for him to bless them. And then we have this scene where this young man comes running up to Jesus and asks him what he should do to inherit the kingdom of God or to inherit eternal life. And then after that, he goes away and Jesus talks to his disciples and they're astonished at his words that he speaks to them. And all of these scenes teach us about the kingdom of God. And they comment on each other and they, and they uh, relate to one another in the truth that they're revealing. 
Before we dive into this, I just want to make an observation that this passage that we have just read connects a few related concepts to each other. First of all, it talks about receiving the kingdom of God. Secondly, it talks about entering the kingdom of God. Third, it talks about inherit, inheriting eternal life. Fourth, it talks about having treasure in heaven. And fifth, it talks about being saved. And all of these concepts are related closely together in the truth that unfolds in this passage. So you can keep that in the back of your mind as we look at this, that these things are tied together as we dive in. Now, first, let's look at this first scene that lays before us in this passage. They brought young children to him that he should touch them and his disciples rebuke those that brought them. So what were what were they doing? Now, consider the context of this. Jesus is a respected teacher among the people. He's someone that they looked up to, someone who was a teacher of spiritual truth. They had uh, he had blessed people in other ways as well, performing works of healing. And he was seen by the people as a messenger of God, as someone who was sent by God to perform his works and speak forth his truth. And they were coming to him with their children for what? It says that he would touch them. What does that what does that mean? That speaks about his blessing them. He was uh, pronouncing a blessing upon them. This was the way that the practice worked, that often a blessing was pronounced by laying hands on the one that was to be blessed and then speaking forth the blessing. Blessing is a very powerful concept in the scriptures. It's speaking forth words that are calling upon God to bestow his goodness and kindness upon the one receiving the blessing. It's a powerful thing going all the way back to the the patriarchal families where Abraham would lay his hands upon Isaac or Isaac would lay his hands upon uh, Jacob and Esau or uh, Jacob would lay his hands upon Joseph's children. And pronounce a blessing upon them. And that blessing was a very powerful statement spoken out loud that called upon God's kindness and blessing upon them. It also often spoke about their destiny, God's purpose for their lives. So blessing is a very powerful thing. Here's one example of blessing from the scriptures in the Old Testament. God set up the priesthood and the priests were God's servants in his temple. And they were God's servants and they ministered to God on behalf of the people. And they ministered and served the people on behalf of God. So they were functioning in the role of a kind of mediator. And so when they were given words to speak to the people, they were given those words to speak them on behalf of God's will and God's purpose for the people. And here's what God instructed them to do. This is from Numbers chapter 6. And God is giving Moses the instruction about how the priests are to bless the people. Numbers chapter 6, verse 22. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, 
On this wise shall ye bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel and I will bless them. There were great power in these words that the priests were to speak. They were, this is kind of like a prayer. It's calling upon God to do all these things for the good of the one receiving the blessing. And God says that when they do this, when they pronounce this blessing, they're putting my name upon the people. They're, they're identifying with the power and the identity and the authority of God in speaking these words to the people. And they're asking God, they're, they're speaking forth these words to say that God would bless thee, that God would keep thee, make his face to shine upon thee, be gracious unto thee, lift up thy countenance upon thee, his countenance upon thee, and give thee peace. And this is very reminiscent of the words that, for example, Paul and sometimes the other apostles would speak when they would write to the churches and they would say, grace and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. This is announcing and proclaiming the source of all of these good things, that they come from God, that they come from above. And it's calling upon God's blessing. And that's what these people wanted for their young children from Jesus. They wanted God's goodness to attend unto their lives. And they wanted this man of God, Jesus, to put his hands on the children and pronounce and call upon God's blessing and goodness for them. Another thing to consider about a blessing is a blessing is something that is received. It's not something that's earned. It's something that's given as a gift of grace from God. It comes from God. Even when the priests were blessing, they were blessing with God's blessing. It wasn't their blessing. It was God's blessing that God had given them to give to the people. And so it, a blessing is by grace. And a blessing is calling upon the essence of God's kingdom to be brought into the lives of those that receive it. In Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus teaches the people from the mountain, he, he pronounces many blessings upon the children of the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 5, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they, the prophets, which were before you. As Jesus begins this sermon, he begins by blessing the children of the kingdom of God. And in his blessing, he is both describing the character of the 
people that make up the kingdom of God, their spiritual nature. And he is also pronouncing and proclaiming God's blessings upon them. They'll receive mercy. They'll see God. They'll receive the kingdom of heaven. And he proclaims these great blessings. People bring their children for Jesus to lay his hands upon them. But a conflict arises in this passage, which forms the context of this beautiful words of Jesus that he speaks. It says that the disciples, his disciples, rebuked those that brought them. There were many times, not just here, there were many times where the disciples, the followers of Jesus, whom Jesus had chosen and called out to serve him, there were many times when the hearts of the followers of Jesus were not in harmony and in line with the heart of God. And so it is. Even with us today, there are times that though, uh, though there are those that are following Jesus, that are his disciples, yet there is a tendency at times for our hearts to not be in line with God's heart, to not be in the line with the hearts of our Savior. And so it was here. They wanted something different, or they, they, they thought perhaps that Jesus wanted something different than Jesus wanted. They rebuked them. They sent them away. What were they thinking? What were they thinking? Perhaps they were thinking, Jesus is too important to waste his time with your little kids. They have nothing to offer the kingdom of God. They have nothing to bring. They're, they're not, uh, it's not like a great uh, um, you know, uh, wealthy man that's coming up and uh, has all kinds of wealth to give to the good of the work of the kingdom. It's not like some uh, powerful centurion or, or official. It's not a, a Pharisee like Nicodemus, someone influential that might be able to accomplish something. It's just these little kids. And they can't, they can't bring anything to, uh, to, to help Jesus out. They have nothing to offer. They're, uh, they, they might seem like they're just a waste of his time. And his effort. But that's not how Jesus saw it. Not at all. In fact, Jesus goes in the complete other direction. He says to them, he says, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. So first, allow them to come. Allow them to come. Don't forbid them. But not only that, it's not just an allowance. But he goes a step further and he says that these little children are the ones, their, their nature is the very character of the people that make up the kingdom of God. They are the essence of God's kingdom. What, what qualities does a little child have that, that Jesus might have been ref, referred to, referring to and saying this? What qualities that they have? When you think about a little child, I think in particular about a couple of things. One they are completely dependent. They are completely dependent. They can't provide for themselves. They can't protect themselves. They can't fight for themselves. They're, they're dependent on the kindness and generosity of others, whether that be their parents or, or someone else to protect them, feed them, provide for them. They're, they're dependent. Another thing about little children is they're Trusting in a certain sense. They're trusting out of necessity. They, they will 
uh, as they get older and they can understand what you say to them, they'll trust you. They'll believe you. What, what, almost what, sometimes whatever you tell them, they will believe you. They're trusting. And they're trusting, in, at least in part, because it's necessary for them to trust. Because they can't do anything else. They are dependent upon what you will give them, what you will tell them. And if you tell them you're going to do something for them, then their world revolves around that. So they're, they're dependent. They don't have the things that we normally associate with our own security and our glory and our safety. Think about what, what people seek in this world, what people strive for. And excel for, and I, and I often use this example because I just remember back to in, in high school and learning about the age of exploration and how these how these people uh, got on ships in a time when it was it was very dangerous and they risked their lives, they periled their lives and the lives of their crew and the, their wealth and their ships, the safety of their ships to cross the sea, miles and miles of ocean, to go to unexplored places where there were dangers of all different kinds from nature and from men and from violence and from hunger and all these things. And they did this. And why did they do this? And uh, many of them, many of them, maybe not all, but many of them did it for one of two reasons. One they did it for wealth. There were stories about uh, gold in abundance in the new world. And so they crossed the seas looking. We're going to go and, and find that gold. And we'll risk our lives. We'll risk our well-being so that we can get this gold and, and this wealth. Or maybe it's the lands that we'll have. And we'll enrich ourselves. Another reason they did it often was for glory. They wanted their names to go down in history. They discovered something great. They accomplished something no one had accomplished before. And so they would uh, compass land and sea. They put their lives at great risk for the sake of their glory and their wealth or their power. And those are the types of things that we seek. When we have power to do things for ourselves, to provide for ourselves. When we have wealth that gives us security. It gives us stability in this life. We can defend ourselves against the many of the harms and risks and dangers of this uncertain world in which we live. At least we think that we can by depending upon those things. And perhaps most important of all, people want that glory to make a name for themselves. And you, when you think about a little child, they have none of those things. They don't have any great glory. They don't have any great strength. They don't have any great wealth. Everything that they have is given to them. And Jesus says, Forgive them, for, forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. And then he says this, Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And that should really get our attention as we consider the kingdom of God. Because when you... When you just stop and you think about the glory of God's kingdom and all that Jesus talk about it, talked about it, I mean, the greatest thing of all is to enter into that and to be part of it. And if there's something that would prevent us from entering in, that ought to be a cause of great concern. And Jesus here, he puts it in these terms very clearly. He says, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. 
Let's keep that in the back of our minds and move on to this next scene that unfolds. He took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them and blessed them. So Jesus is one who receives and blesses these dependent, trusting little children and says they're the ones that are the very essence of God's kingdom. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Right now we have an, another, uh, another scene that unfolds. There's another passage in one of the other gospel accounts that talks about a rich young ruler. This might be the same man. This might be a, a description of the same thing, though it doesn't use that language here. But if you were to think about a rich young ruler, you're thinking about somebody who has all of those things that I was talking about before. He's young, so he has his strength, his, his, his health. He has his whole life ahead of him. He's rich, so he has money, wealth. He's a ruler. He has power. He has glory. Um, but this one that's described here, it says he came running. This isn't somebody that's just a casual observer of the things that's not very interested. This is someone who's very motivated to pursue what Jesus has. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. He comes running. He's got the strength to come running. You know, those little children, uh, they couldn't run to Jesus. They had to be brought. They weren't even, they didn't even have the ability to run to Jesus or to do anything for him. But here this man comes, he comes running and he asks him, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Well, that seems like a good question. A good question. I mean, what could be more important than eternal life? What could be more important than than everlasting life? I mean, we know this life, this present uh, mortal life in which we inhabit at this time, we know that it will come to an end. No matter what glory, wealth, whatever we have, it will not last. So there, if there is eternal life to be had, that is far greater than anything in this life that is but a vapor, which is here today and gone tomorrow, which will fade. Eternal life, what could be greater? He desired a good thing. And he wanted to do whatever he could do to get it. And he asked Jesus, what must, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers him in a very interesting way. First, he answers his question with a question, a rhetorical kind of question. He says, uh, to, he says why, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. So first of all, he asks him this question, which is kind of interesting that he would ask this. But he's getting at the heart of this man's understanding of goodness. What what is goodness? You know, he was maybe accustomed to call these rabbis and these teachers. This this is what he's saying. Good rabbi saying, addressing him. It's respectful. He's he's, uh, addressing him with esteem and honor. But Jesus calls it into question. Saying, why, why, do you, why do you say that? Why do you use those words? He said, there's none good but, but God. None good but one. That is God. A very important truth for this man to understand. 
that God alone is good. This was the doctrine that Jesus taught. This was his doctrine of man and doctrine of God. When he talked to his disciples, when he talked to his hearers, he talked to them as sinners, as uh, as evil, even. You know, Jesus used it almost casually. Jesus said things that would be offensive to, to us at times. I mean, he, he talked about giving good gifts, God giving good gifts. And he talked about how earthly parents, how you know how to good, give good gifts to your children. And he says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts, how much more God will give the Holy Spirit to them that ask. He just used it. He just threw it out as, it was, as if it was obvious that, that we are evil and God is good. So that's his doctrine about man as being sinful and God as being good. Uh, sometimes people read this and it, it makes you wonder, well, what's, what's Jesus saying here? What's Jesus saying about himself? Because he seems to question being called good himself. So is Jesus good? Let's come back to that later. I mean, you know, you know the answer, but why does Jesus answer, respond in this way? Is he getting this young man to think about what true goodness is and who he's really talking about? He said, there's none good but one, that is God. He goes on, thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, let's look at it the other way. What causes death? Why does death exist? Right, somebody said it, sin. Death exists because of sin. When God gave the law to Israel, he said these words, uh, ye shall therefore... Keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. God gave his law. He says, if a man do them, he shall live in them. God's commandments are life. To to walk in obedience to them is, is to live. And yet... Uh, you know, he, he conveys to this man the law. He, he reminds him of the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not commil, commit, kill. Do not steal, etc. Um, in particular, he relays the commandments that are from, you know, the Ten Commandments. And, and particularly, not all of them, but particularly the ones that have to do with our interaction with one another. Which some of the commandments have to do with our our. Uh, service to God, and some of them have to do with our interaction with our fellow man. And he, he relays these things, and the man answers, and he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. And Jesus, beholding him, loved him. So, so this man, he hears these, and he says, I, I followed these commandments my whole life. So he, he believes that he's He's living up to these things, but but something, something still drove him to run to Jesus and ask. He knows that something's missing, which Jesus is going to affirm here in his answer. He says, one thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. 
Well, Jesus presents to this man uh, what I consider perhaps one of the greatest offers of one of the greatest deals ever offered in history. He tells the man, essentially, he says, he says, give up earthly wealth. Go get rid of it, sell it, give it to the poor and come and follow me and have treasure in heaven. He says, give up your earthly wealth in exchange for heavenly treasures and come and follow me. Can you imagine a better deal? Earthly, corruptible, temporary, fading away treasures and and be able to give them up and follow Jesus and have treasure in heaven to have spiritual, eternal blessings and eternal life. And rather than jumping for joy at the opportunity, the man goes away sad. He goes away grieved because he has great possessions. And we don't know what happened after that. We don't know. We're not told the rest of the story for this particular but man. But it doesn't really, doesn't really matter. That's his story. But we're told what we need to know about it. We're told that he, went, he was sad at that saying and went away grieved for he had great possessions. Now we could be hard on him and we could say, oh, what, how foolish. But maybe any one of us put in a similar situation would be inclined to feel the same way as this man. And maybe it's not uh, wealth. Maybe it's something else. But we all might have things in our, our lives. You probably have something in your life that you value and that you treasure so highly that it would be at least difficult for you to give that up if God asked you to give it up. Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a, a, a profession, a sense of security, a, your reputation. But whatever it is, if that thing comes before God, then it will hinder you from entering in to the enjoyment of the kingdom of God. As it seemed to for this man. There were other commandments that Jesus didn't relate to, to this man. One of them is... Perhaps the most important of all. God says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I'll tell you, that doesn't have to be a statue that you carve out of rock and bow down to. It could be anything, anything that comes before God in your life. Jesus even said in relation to somebody like this man, He says, you can't serve both God and mammon, which I think was like the God of of money. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. There cannot be anything before God in your heart. Let's look at the third part of this section. Jesus looked round about. So, he, so this man, he goes away. He doesn't hear the rest of this thing. The, the, these words are for the disciples of Jesus that were there. These words are for you. 
You're, you're getting to read them and hear them. Jesus spoke these words for your sakes. And the disciples, uh, and Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? So, wow, he says, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And his disciples were astonished. And they were astonished, perhaps at least in part, because they understood enough to know that riches, like this man had, were a blessing from God. And in fact, many of God's chosen people were blessed with great abundance, whether it's Abraham being blessed with riches or Ruth or King David or others. They were blessed with riches and the riches that they had came from God. The blessings that they had came from God and God often blessed the righteous. Think about the story of Job. I mean, God took away Job's Riches or allowed them to be taken away, but at the end of that story, he blessed him with even more abundance than he had to start with. So they understood that blessings from God were, were often God's goodness blessing to the righteous. And so they didn't look at this uh, rich young man with this kind of suspicion of, oh, well, he's got all those riches, he's probably corrupt, he's probably evil. They looked at him as an example of God's blessings and someone who, if anybody was righteous and deserving, it would be someone like this. They were astonished at his words, but Jesus answers. And in his answer, he not only repeats and reiterates the point he had made, but he even adds more depth and exposition of what he had said. He changes the language a little bit. He says, children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? And he gets right to the heart of the issue. It's not really about the riches. It's about what they do to the person that has them. It's about maybe not even so much that as what happens in the heart of the person who has them, that they have a tendency. We have a tendency in our sinful nature, whether it's riches or something else, to put our trust in it, to trust in it, to depend upon it instead of trusting in God. This man didn't have any trust in his riches. If he didn't love his riches, then they would be no hindrance to him. But they were. They clearly were. And Jesus knew just what to say to pierce to the heart of this man's issues in his heart. Of what he trusted in. Because he wouldn't, when given the opportunity to give that up for something far greater, he was sad. He was sad rather than happy at that opportunity. How hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. What? That's not just hard, right? That's not just hard. This is impossible. 
This is impossible. His disciples are starting to get it. They're starting to understand that what Jesus is saying is so astounding to them. And they were astonished out of measure. That's it's kind of an old style phrase, astonished out of measure. I'm getting from that, that their mind was blown by what Jesus had just said. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And, and this is good that the disciples, they, I think, are starting to get it because their response wasn't like, whoa, well, I'm glad I'm not rich. That's not how they looked at it. They looked at it, in, in a sense, the opposite. They're like, well, if they can't get in, we're never going to get in. No one's going to be able to get in. That's what they say. They say among themselves, who then can be saved? This is a bleak situation. Now, let's, let's just revisit briefly a couple things in this. First of all, this man said, I've kept all these things from my youth. Jesus doesn't even uh, question him on that. But we could ask the question, did he? Did he keep all these words? Is that the conclusion you would come to from the whole of Jesus' teaching? Well, think back also to the Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus do there? Jesus exposited the law of God. And he showed that obedience to the law of God, it, it, it is not just sufficient for an outward performance of those things. The heart must be right before God. Blessed are the pure in heart. He says if you're angry with your brother without cause, you're, you're guilty of murder in your heart. If you lust after a, a woman, you're guilty of adultery in your heart. He brings it to the heart. It's not enough of an outward performance of these things. Righteousness is purity of heart before God. God sees your whole person. He's not fooled by the outward appearance, but he judges righteous judgment he judges the heart. He perceives the heart. And there's none good but God. Which, which goes right back to what Jesus said first to this man. There is none good but God. That means you are not good. There is none good. No, not one, says in another place. So what do we need? We need to be saved. We need to be saved. And so... Entering into the kingdom of God, entering the kingdom of God is not about how fast you can run to Jesus. And it's not about what you can do to inherit eternal life, like this man asked. It says in another place, it is not of him that wills or of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. If you are to enter into the kingdom of God, you must receive it like a little child. The kingdom of God must be received. What do you receive? You receive a gift. Something that is given. Something that is given. It's not of him that wills or of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. And Jesus answers them in this way. He looking upon them, he saith, with men... It is impossible. 
But not with God, for with God, all things are possible. Praise God for that. That there is hope. There is hope. But that hope is in the power and in the mercy of God to be merciful upon sinners. And the children of his kingdom, the people that are the very essence of his kingdom, are those that receive as a gift the goodness and the mercy of God. That God's blessings are done unto them and received with faith and with trust in the God who gives them freely and generously and mercifully. They have a righteousness which exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees because it is a righteousness which comes from the goodness of God. With man, this is impossible. But with God, not with God, with God, all things are possible. And so Jesus says, with men, it is impossible. But not with God, for with God, all things are possible, including, I'll add, including eternal life for, for undeserving sinners. And how are they possible? They're possible because of the power and the mercy of God and the way that God accomplishes it is through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's, let's close with going back to this one question I raised before. He says, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. Is Jesus good? Was Jesus questioning his own goodness? Was he calling that into question? I don't think so. I know not, in fact. He said in another place, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He's good. He is good. He says to this man, he says, one thing thou lackest. This man lacked one thing, and the thing he lacked was the most important thing. And in order to obtain that thing, here's what he tells him to do. Follow him. Follow Jesus. Jesus isn't questioning his own goodness. He says, the greatest thing, the most important thing that you could do right now is give up everything you have for me. He's not questioning his own value or his own goodness. But he's saying he is the answer to all of these things. In him, it says, was life. His life was the light of men. He says, I am the light of the world. He is worthy to be followed. He is, he is good. And he says, he said this, he said, with men this is impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. So we know that if Jesus is good, Jesus is also God. And if Jesus is God, Jesus is also good. And if, and if God is the only one who can save, then if Jesus is a savior, then Jesus is God. And if it's impossible with man, but possible for Jesus, then Jesus is God and Jesus is good. Let's, let's read 
this one last thing that he says later on in this chapter, not part of our, of our section, but in verse 45, he says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. This is how he does it. Saying, he said, I didn't come to be served, first and foremost. He said, first and foremost, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve, to minister. And how? To give his life a ransom for many. That he would lay down his life to accomplish the salvation of his people. So he is both able and willing. He has the ability to do what it takes to save his people. What is impossible for you is possible for God. It's possible for Jesus Christ. And it is accomplished by him giving his life. He went to the cross. He shed his blood. And he made his life an offering for sin. That you, though a sinner, could be purged from your sin and saved. You, though evil, us, all of us, every last one of us is undeserving of that. And he laid down his life to save his people from their sins.